From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, about six weeks into the coronavirus story, by my count, or you know, six months, who knows, or six years. I mean, it's, it's, it's all relative right now. But what I think we saw this week is a little bit sharper focus and maybe a little bit more attention paid to the economic ramifications of the coronavirus outbreak and the potential impact that that's going to have on education and the impact it's already having on education. Uh, maybe we start, uh, Clark, talk about uh, some discussion from a webinar earlier this week uh, that put into focus maybe what might be in store. For yeah, sure. yeah, a- absolutely, Kevin. That's a that's a good place to start. And it was Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra's weekly webinar uh, with top State Department of Education officials that was earlier this week. And what the superintendent told school officials on the webinar is to brace for another round of potential budget holdbacks. And these budget holdbacks would be new. They would be in addition to the 1% holdback that Governor Little recently announced. And the thing about these budget cuts, while they are not official, and that's very important to keep in mind is they're not official, um, they are looking at up to 5%. Uh, School officials have been asked to run the numbers and crunch the numbers on what a 5% holdback would look like. And notably, this would be for the 2020-2021 budget, and that budget year begins July 1st. Um, So school officials are bracing for potentially another round of holdbacks, and this would come in the upcoming budget year that would begin on July 1st. Correct. And I think the timetable is important to keep in mind. we know that there's going to be a negative effect on tax revenues. And we know that that's going to uh, uh, potentially have an effect on what's available for for K-12 and higher education. We don't know yet how bad that's going to be because those those numbers haven't yet really rolled in. But the day of reckoning is going to come really starting in May. Uh, That's when you will start to see impact in sales tax collections. And that comes in quicker. You know, that's the quicker response to an economic downturn when when consumers contract uh, on their spending and they, they hunker down, as uh, I think it's pretty clear people are doing right now, you see that pretty quickly in sales tax collections. There's about a month or so lag, but uh, you know, Alex Adams, the state's uh, you know Governor Little's budget guy, is saying, come May, you will start to see that impact. And so that's, yeah, you know, 2021, if, you will start to see the impact on income tax collections based on all of these layoffs uh, that we've seen and all of these uh, jobless claims we've seen. So, you know, it's coming and you know that it's going to hit in that 2021 budget year that begins on July 1st. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Kevin. And for any folks who may be wondering, you know, OK, this is a horrible time um, to cut school budgets because we're through this crisis. But that's why uh, they would be looking at these cuts and holdbacks is because, Education spending is the state of Idaho's largest general fund expense every year, and it does rely on the famous three-legged stool. And uh, two of those big legs are the uh, the sales tax and the and the uh, the income tax. And so it's when state revenues are affected, uh, there'll be less money uh, to go out for funding. And so that's why we're bracing for potentially another round of holdbacks. Once again, it's not official. 
hasn't been implemented. We don't know how it would work, but just doing some fair Little's staff has instructed all state agencies to brace for this possibility. This is not just uh, Mm -hmm. directed at K-12 and and higher ed. Correct. But let's run the numbers real quickly. If you had a 5% holdback for K-12, we're talking about $95 million. Right. If you get 5% for higher education, you're talking about $15 million. So this is significant money. And this is more money than is coming in from that federal stimulus law that we've been writing about. So right. this will have a significant hit that uh, you know, you know, is, is going to result in, in, in cuts in programs. There's really hardly any way of getting around that. So It would be a significant hit, you know, obviously about five times more significant than the current 1% holdback that schools are looking at. And one way to look at it is, you know, obviously it would – it would be more than the stimulus funds that are coming in. Another way to look at it, uh, Representative Jason Monks, I want to say he's the assistant House majority leader, a Republican out yep. of Nampa, was speaking at a Boise Metro uh, Chamber of Commerce legislative review forum that Idaho Education News co-sponsored earlier this week. It was Tuesday or Wednesday morning, I want to say. And uh, Representative Monks said, and he was kind of trying to soften the blow, but it does sort of put it in perspective the legislature approved about a 4%, a 4.6% increase in K-12 public school funding for this, um, for 2021. And so those budget cuts would undo that, basically. We would go back to what the current funding levels would be. It would basically undo, and then a little more than undo, if it is 5%, everything that we invested this most recent legislative session. And it wouldn't be that clean. It wouldn't just take away the brand new investments. We don't know how it would be implemented yet. But in terms of overall dollar figures and percentage figures, that's a pretty close approximation. Right. And he didn't talk, uh, to, my, to my understanding, I, I wasn't in on the seminar. I, you were. Um, he didn't talk about higher ed, but I'll talk about it real quickly. I mean, higher ed did not get a 4.6% budget increase uh, right. this year. They got more like a 0.4% increase. So a 5% budget cut for higher education, were that to come to pass, would have a very significant uh, effect on higher education, especially in light of the fact that higher ed is uh, is holding the line on tuition. The tuition freeze is going into effect this year. Uh, regardless of what happens on, on the budget side, whatever happens on the revenue side, yeah. Whatever happens in terms of state appropriations for higher ed. So 5% cut for higher ed could be uh, extremely serious. And you've already reported, Kevin, on between the tuition freeze, concerns over what enrollment would look like, and some of these costs and factors going on right now. You've already talked about colleges and universities could be facing sort of an existential crisis at this point. Uh, Representative Monks didn't talk about the overall percentage impact on higher ed, but he did get a question about higher ed, and it was really kind of just briefly, it was really interesting forum uh, with the Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce. It had former minority leader Matt Erpelding, who is now the legislative director, the government affairs director for the chamber. He was moderating this event, so he was kind of mixing it up with some of his old house colleagues. Uh, Jason Monks was the Republican, Alana Rubel was the Democrat, and representative, or former Representative Erpelding asked a question, and he said, where do we go from here on higher education, given 
this existential crisis they're facing, giving, given the holdbacks, and given what was really an antagonistic relationship between the Idaho legislature, particularly the Idaho House, and the colleges and universities, which saw the legislature kill two higher education budgets. And Representative Monk said, I think it's to come time for higher education to tighten its belt, was basically his response there. So it's interesting, um, but the situation with higher education is, uh, it's a concern for everyone, but particularly um, unknown for higher ed, right, Kevin? Right, and, and this all kind of segues into some news that broke uh, late Monday afternoon. You know, as we're talking about what could happen down the road, we're already starting to see some contraction in the education community. Um, the news that broke on Monday afternoon, late Monday afternoon, uh, Boise State announced uh, staff furloughs uh, that will uh, be up to 10 working days for some administrators, for some of the, the highest paid administrators at, at the university. Uh, you know, it, this will affect most uh, employees at the university. It's not going to affect faculty right away, but the, the furloughs that uh, President Marlene Trump announced uh, via email uh, late Monday afternoon, it comes on the heels of some uh, immediate revenue losses at Boise State. Uh, she calculates that the university is uh, down about $10 million in revenue just in the past few weeks, just in the aftermath of the coronavirus outbreak, whether it's refunding room and board for students who were sent home, sent out of the dorms, uh, you know, you know, reimbursing them for what they had paid out for room and board that they cannot use. Uh, cancellation of campus events, you know, look, all of this kind of adds up, you know, whether it's parking, whether it's the student union building, all of those, you know, revenue sources that, that help support a college or a university, that's all kind of gone by the wayside when you, when you have a closed campus. So about a $10 million hit for Boise State, the furloughs are designed to try to offset that. And in her email, she said, I'm trying to keep programs whole here. Uh, I'm going to take even a longer furlough myself than, than 10 days, but she did not rule out the possibility of having to do more, having to do additional furloughs uh, down the road, depending on what happens on the revenue side. So that's some of the news that we got from Boise State uh, on Monday. Uh, we also heard about a Treasure Valley district, the uh, CUNA school district, doing uh, furloughs of classified staff uh, with with school out, with, uh, with remote learning going on in CUNA. Uh, classified staff were furloughed with the idea of trying to bring them back when school comes back, when, when school sessions return. But you're already starting to see this. You know, you're starting to see, and I think both with CUNA and with Boise State University, uh, administrators bracing for things could get worse. So let's try to, you know, do some belt tightening right now. Let's try to reduce some spending right now in hopes of uh, being better positioned to weather the storm if it continues and if it worsens. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that we're going to continue to, to catalog as we get into this, um, the state's response, but additionally the impact um, at colleges and universities, at K-12 schools, on families, because we know that with everything that is happening, there will be significant impacts. I mean, going back to one of Governor Little's press conferences this week, he talked about his efforts to get back to normal. It would be a version of normal. Um mm -hmm. And, and so those are some of the things that we'll continue to follow and, and, and catalog as, as we get through this. What, what's affected? How are people responding? 
you know, education funding is a big part of our beat on normal times, uh, but these are not normal times. So I think education funding is going to be even a bigger part of our beat uh, going forward and, and in ways that we would not normally cover. You know, when we had Debbie Critchfield on Facebook Live on Tuesday, uh, and we had a chance, you and I, to, to interview her for an hour. And if you haven't listened to that, by the way, uh, that's archived on our Facebook page. It's, it's well worth your time because we got to cover a lot of ground with uh, President Critchfield. I asked her towards the end of the, the higher education segment about what does the picture look like for athletics? You know, what does the picture look like if you have, you know, a football season that begins and you have no football? Or that's you have that's football the elephant in the room because of the funding. That is such a driver in the in the athletics budget. You know, football pays for just about everything else in, in a, a college's athletic budget because that's the revenue sport that and and basketball i mean those are the two sports that pay for pretty much everything else so we don't cover college sports we don't cover college athletics but if you were talking about that kind of a budget hit and at the ncaa level you know administrators are racing for the possibility that maybe football doesn't happen or maybe it happens without fans and that's going to affect uh, athletic budgets uh, for pretty much every other sport so Stuff we don't normally cover, we're going to have to cover. These are unusual times, so we're going to adapt our reporting accordingly. Well, it gets into all kinds of impacts that maybe you don't think about it. It, it initially. Think, oh, you know, it's only football. What's the big deal? But you talk about sponsorships and licensing agreements and television agreements and concessions and ticket sales. And all of a sudden, you're talking about a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Whether we... You know, if, you if you're not an athletics fan, this is going to sound, you know, this is going to grate on your nerves to hear somebody say this. But I know. It's, it's a branding issue for, for schools that are trying to reach out to students, reach out to donors, reach out to, you know, keep relationships with alumni. Athletics is a big part of branding. And, you know, <laughs> I, I know this from the standpoint of my alma mater. When, when, when our football team was terrible, <laughs> which it was for most of my for my time there and for years after, you know, it was a branding thing. When the football team kind of turned around, branding branding improved and, and donor donations improved and philanthropic uh, contributions uh, rose with the, the fortunes of the football program. It sounds trivial to a lot of folks in the education community. I get it, but this is the reality. So, you know, this is stuff we don't normally cover, but it's stuff we're going to have to cover going forward. Yeah. Is this a good time, Kevin, to segue into your analysis piece from this week where you looked at some of the challenges that colleges and universities yeah. are facing moving online? It was an interesting piece on Thursday, but why don't you kind of set it up and then take through take me through some of the things you found in your reporting? I was kind of struck because we both listened to this and it was a, an ill-fated state board meeting on Monday as it turned yeah. out. Uh, they had to do a redo uh, later in the week on the action part of the agenda. But the state board meeting that we eventually got a chance to listen in on Monday, um, the board talked about how the remote education experience is going at the K-12 level and, and at the higher education level. And what struck me was things that we think about with K-12, you know, access issues, trying to get learning materials in the hands of students remotely. Achievement gaps, you know, how remote learning is gonna affect different students differently. Issues that we associate with K-12, those same issues are affecting higher education right now. Um, 
Marlene Trump talked about the access issues at Boise State University and said, you know, we're trying to be very creative about trying to get students online and get them materials remotely to the point of setting up routers in the parking lot of the stadium so that students can drive by, they can do their uploads, they can do their downloads, stay in their car, you know, kind of curbside uh, internet service for students who need it. And she didn't say it, but I think it's probably uh, fair to to extrapolate, as I did in my piece on Thursday. That's great if you're a Boise State student who lives in the Treasure Valley, who has a car, who can do the curbside uh, you know, internet access. But if you're a student in rural Idaho, Boise State student in a rural community, you're kind of on your own trying to figure out access, trying yeah. to figure out computer access. And if your local public library is closed, you know, that may have been your best uh, route to to get online so you know these are access issues and, and they're happening at the university level and the achievement gap issues are emerging also you know both kevin satterley the idaho state university president and c scott green the university of idaho president said you know this works for some students and it works for some classes but it doesn't work for every student and it doesn't work in every class you know some students really need that direct in interaction with a professor they need to be a part of a class. They need that structure that comes with all of that. Some classes like labs, it's pretty hard to translate those kind of uh, classes into an online environment. And it was just kind of an aha moment for me listening to it. It's like, you know, yeah, we, we think about the achievement gap at the K-12 level. There's so much, uh, you know, focus that's been paid to that. There's been so much academic research that's been devoted to achievement gaps as it should be. It's a very, it, it's a seminal issue in K-12 in Idaho and across the nation. But these achievement gaps are, you know, are, they don't stop at 12th grade. I mean, these achievement gap issues are occurring at the higher education level as higher ed moves into this online model. So I, I was really struck by that. And, you know, when we had a chance to talk to, uh, to Debbie Critchfield on Tuesday, I asked her, well, you heard this at the board meeting on Monday. What was your takeaway? And, and she said, you know, I think sometimes we make this assumption that because college students are paying to go to college, that it's, you know, it's kind of on them to figure out how to make it work. You know, you know, we, we're going to provide the service and they're going to avail themselves of the service because they're paying for it. And if they can't get it done, that's that their problem, not ours. Uh, you know, I think she realizes that Life's a little bit different right now for, for college students because we're expecting them to make this very sudden change in how they're accessing their education, how education is being delivered to them. That changed overnight. It had to change overnight because of the coronavirus outbreak, but it is, it, it's a very sudden change. And, you know, to assume, oh, they're college kids, they're digital natives, they'll figure it out. That's an oversimplification, and I was really kind of struck by that this week. So yeah, that's why I did the analysis piece, looking at it, because you know I, you know I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You know this is a such a big experiment that's being forced on the education system right now that we're going to be spending years figuring out how it worked and you know who got left behind, who who made out okay, you know who came out the other side of this with you know you know. A good education and, and you know who who kept pace 
Yeah. That kind of research is not just something we need to do at the K-12 level, in my opinion. We're going to have to look at higher education and see how, how college students came out the other side of this. Yeah, I agree. And that's another good reason to go back to our interview with President Critchfield from Tuesday afternoon. I want to thank her for taking the time out of her schedule um, to do that, because what it allowed us to do is take questions that we've been getting from our readers over the last month and pose them directly to Debbie. And she spent about an hour answering them. And we broke it up into two segments. Uh, if you watched it, you know, uh, half of the show was focused on K-12. Half of the show was focused on higher education, but uh, I, I think your analysis piece was really strong on Thursday, Kevin, and it really, for a lot of reasons, drove home the fact that equity and the achievement gap are going to be even bigger stories than they were before uh, at the K-12 level, at the higher ed level, because you can just sort of imagine right now that all kinds of students depending on where they live and what their technology capacity is, are having very different experiences with remote or online or distance learning today. And what their home lives are like. And what their home lives are like and, and how much time they're able to devote to instruction in their studies. And so whether it's this summer, whether it's next fall, whether it's on down the road for years to come, equity and achievement gaps are going to be a huge story for us, even more so than they were before, I think. Yeah. No, no, definitely. I mean, it's it's going to, you know, again, like we were talking about in the earlier segment, I mean, it's going to force us to refocus and, you know, reemphasize and, and maybe, you know, double down on some of these topics. I mean, you know, achievement gap, we know it's a big issue. And it's it's a defining issue in, in education in Idaho and across the country. But now it's even more important to for us to cover it and to try to break down, you know, what happened this spring? <laughs> you know, yeah. how did it work this spring? And, you know, we hope school's back to normal in the fall. How are schools adapting? How are students readapting? What are schools having to, to go back and try to, uh, you know, to reteach? I mean, there's was, was just a lot that we're going to have to to sort out just yeah. as we get out of this big, you know, this big transformation. And there's going to be so much to cover and so much to to try to sort out when things get back to quote unquote normal. Yeah. I had a couple more topics I wanted to get to this week, Kevin. We're in the second half of our show now. Where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk about some of the surveying that we did or do we want to look ahead to reopening? Well, let's let's kind of talk a little bit about the reopening issues uh, as they stand right now, because that kind of ties into a couple of things that uh, that we wrote about you yeah. and I on Thursday. Um, we both listened in on Governor Little's uh, most recent news conference. This was Thursday morning, and this was his rollout of a plan to reopen businesses in the state. This four-staged reopening of business and. His goal is to try to get as much of Idaho business back to normal by the end of June. That's exactly right. What we didn't hear about, and, and you know, this is more of a business story than an education story, uh, what came out on Thursday, not a whole lot of, of clarity and closure on what's happening with the stay-at-home order, which dictates what's going to happen 
with K-12 reopening. Yeah, and yeah. I guess the thing just to keep in mind right now where we stand, April 24th, the stay-home order is in place right now until April 30th, until late next week, unless it's right. modified or extended or repealed. And so that's where things stand now. The reopening plan was was beyond that. That was like a next step and kind of aspirational. You know, the governor said every two weeks we're going to evaluate where we are and what the situation is. But the thing to keep in mind, the stay-at-home order is in place until late next week, until April 30th. The State Board of Education's criteria, if local school districts want to try to reopen, that hasn't changed. Uh, but basically, the reopening thing would happen after the stay-home order is lifted, and we need to stay home. Or, <laughs> we need to stay home, yes, but we need to stay tuned until next week to find out what happens with the stay-home order before we, we really home. get into the reopening. Go out in the, the streets. Yeah. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So so you know, you know, as you're clear as mud. Offline on Thursday, what what? What the governor was talking about on, on Thursday really had very little to do with education. Yeah. The big decision point will come sometime next week when we see what Governor Little does with the stay-at-home order, because as long as there's a stay-at-home order, in effect, nothing the state board has established in terms of a reopening criteria can go forward, and, and K-12 uh, would remain closed indefinitely. Uh, with Randy Schrader's help, our, our, our data guru, uh, we were able to do a quick turnaround survey, uh, just get a sense of where uh, school administrators are on the reopening issue. And what we found uh, was that 69 districts and charters that responded to the survey said, we're, we're done. We've made up our mind. We're closed for the year. For the academic uh, year. Right. They're done for the academic year. It's all going to be remote. It's all going to be, uh, it's all going to be, you know, either over the internet or printed materials uh, delivered to and from kids' homes. 89 districts and charters said they have not made that decision yet. Now, that does not mean 89 districts and charters are hoping to reopen or planning to reopen, expect to reopen, because several of them, you know, it was a yes-no question in the survey, but several of them did it because it's good to have more, more context than, than less. A, a number of them said, you know, we haven't really made the decision yet, but we don't see it happening. We don't see a, a path forward to reopen. I did have a chance to talk to a, a couple of school superintendents who are hoping to reopen, or at least are considering the idea. Uh, Rob Waite in the Shoshone School District, uh, Mark Gee in the, uh, the Preston School District, kind of in wait and see mode. They want to see what, uh, what happens with the stay-at-home order. They're looking at those state board guidelines and they're looking at their communities. And a couple of interesting communities to look at, as it turned out, Shoshone is in Lincoln County. If you've been watching the coronavirus case numbers, uh, you know that Lincoln County has had relatively high number of confirmed cases uh, in terms of the rate, in terms of you know, positive cases relative to population. Lincoln County has the second highest uh, coronavirus infection rate in the state, second only to Blaine County. So, you know, they're in a situation where, you know, the numbers are not great, but they have kind of slowed down. They, they had the spike in, in confirmed cases a couple of weeks ago. It's slowed down. They've had a, a new case or two uh, sporadically over the past few few weeks. So Rob Wade is saying, well, we want to look at it. We want to see where we are. We're going to 
talk to the health district officials and we'll go with the data takes us. His hope is to try to reopen if, if possible. Preston, kind of the same story. Um, you know, their school year ends on, March, on May 21st. So reopening is a really tight window. You know, when I was talking to Superintendent Gee over there, he said, you know, look, if we don't have a path forward by early May, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to even try. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to try to reopen for a week or two. And what I found interesting about their situation is, uh, here's a border community. Preston is in uh, a county that has no confirmed coronavirus cases, but Preston is right along the Utah border and the adjoining county, Cache County, Utah has, uh, last I checked on their website, 40 confirmed coronavirus cases. So, you know, reasonably, yeah, a significant number of coronavirus cases just across the border. So uh, health district officials are surely going to look at what's happening right across the border uh, in deciding whether it makes sense to try to reopen in Preston. And superintendent made a really good point. He said, you know, I've got a bunch of teachers who live in Utah and commute. They cross the border uh, to teach in Preston. Utah schools are closed for the year. There's no if, if ands, or buts about it. They're done. So for those teachers, reopening the schools in Preston creates a, a child care issue. What, what do you do with your kids if they're home and they're not going to school and you're a teacher expected to uh, show up in school in Preston? So a lot of, uh, a lot of factors that that district is going to have to figure out. And I think uh, what Shoshone and Preston are looking at is probably symptomatic of the decisions that uh, districts and charters would have to make if the opportunity uh, presents itself if if the option is is open to them to try to reopen. So we try to get a sense of what's going on. It's uh, a split within the education community right now. It may be a moot point uh, this time next week. We don't know. Yeah, um, it certainly is. There, there. It is a little bit confusing. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot that we don't know. Uh, but I guess the controlling when thing. I spent 15 minutes on Slack where I was being very dense on Thursday, trying to listen to the governor and saying, well, how does this affect education? <laughs> he kept saying, hey, it really doesn't. Calm down, it really doesn't. <laughs> and it really doesn't. And you know, we will know much better about where education stands uh, at this time next week. So the conversation and the, uh, the podcast will, will sound a little bit different. Because of the stay home order, uh, and we'll expect some, well, we will have clarity one way or the other by the time we're back for another podcast next week about what happens with that. I also get the impression that maybe the state board will weigh in one more time here. Maybe they will tweak or clarify some of their criteria. Maybe that will happen in the next week or two. Um, they meet again on Monday. Yeah, they meet again on Monday. Uh, still, it may have come through while we were talking right now, but still looking for an agenda to know exactly what they're going to do. But the state board may provide a little bit more clarity. And, and, and I know that um, the timingness is an issue, and, and I know that scheduling, and there's a short window here, and and I know it's confusing and frustrating, um, but I think we'll know more next week between the governor's decision on the stay-home order and perhaps the state board coming in and perhaps clarifying uh, one or two points. We'll look for that. Of course, next week will be a busy week for us um, because it will set up maybe what could happen for the end of this academic year. Um but I, I, that's the thing. The governor has stressed that we're basically taking this two weeks at a time. 
that his reopening plan was really an economic plan, really geared towards businesses and the public at large. The school plan is developed by the State Board of Education and the local school districts, but we really are looking at this two weeks at a time, and the governor has said that although he wants to open things back up, that if there's another spike in cases, that we're going to put the brakes on this reopening. Right, and, and definitely not trying to rush into anything. Yeah. On the business end, he was definitely talking about this is a, a staged approach that is subject to change depending on what happens with the case numbers. If there's a spike, we've got to slow down. He didn't talk a whole lot about education on Thursday, but when he did talk about it, he was talking more about the fall. The fall. Yeah. You know, I don't see any reason why we can't reopen in the fall and, and have things back to quote unquote normal in the fall. You know, he didn't say a whole lot about uh, the rest of this academic year. He was focused more about trying to get to a point where the, the fall uh, returns to, uh, to more of a traditional educational model. So, you know, while there's been a lot of controversy about stay-at-home order and the, the, the impact on business, uh, the governor is staying on a pretty, uh, pretty strict message here about, you know, we're going to take this thing slowly. We're not going to do anything uh, in, a, in a hurry. We're going to kind of revisit the schedule and revisit the situation as, as things unfold. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I look at it. Um, that was a busy week. There's, of course, some things we didn't get to. The homepage, www.idahoednews.org. Uh, is the place to go for anything you may have missed. We're continuing to... A lot this week. If you read one thing this week, you should definitely read the story from Sammy Edge and Nicole Foy about uh, students who are working in the fields, working in, working in agriculture, and juggling work that they can do uh, to make a little bit of money while juggling remote learning. It's a really good piece. It's, it's a fascinating look at how... Students are adapting to a changing world, and that's part of the, the ongoing partnership between uh, Idaho Indies and the Idaho Statesman. Uh, it's, it's an outstanding piece. If, like I say, that's the first thing you should read this week if you haven't already read it. Yep, yep, good stuff there for sure. Uh, we will be back next week for another edition of the new Extra Credit podcast. Two things that are on our radar, obviously, whatever the State Board of Education does during its upcoming meeting on Monday, and then whatever Governor Little does with the stay-home order that would expire April 30th, but it could also be modified or extended in some form. We'll just have to wait and see. And I'm working on a piece that I hope to drop sometime uh, early to mid-next week, uh, talking to some rural educators about the, uh, the adjustment to remote learning in small communities. So, uh, we'll have some dispatches from rural Idaho about how this has uh, been unfolding. So, all right, I appreciate you. In the next few days. Yep, I appreciate you staying on top of that. As always, um, we had a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Thanks for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and stay safe.